0: So glad to have us all together. So glad that all of you could join us online. The 12 tribes gathered for the Feast of Tabernacles. So today we're going to resume the message of the manna. And upon completing the introduction, I really enjoyed the conversations afterwards. One conversation in particularly was very interesting I had with Pete and Alicia. They shared something that I was not aware of. It was regarding the manna being spoken of in the Book of Wisdom, which is one of the Apocrypha books. I was able to locate the verses and I wanted to share them with all of you as well. Here it is. It was in chapter 16, verse 20 and 21. It reads, Instead whereof thou feddest thy own people with angels food and did send them from heaven bread prepared without their labour, able to content every man's delight. Did y'all hear that? Able to content every man's delight. How many people were in the Exodus? Like 2.53 million, hello. Able to content every man's delight and agreeing to every taste. Now, that's very difficult. (laughs) For thy sustenance declared thy sweetness unto thy children, and serving to the appetite of the eater the individual eater tempered itself to every man's liking that was awesome thank you Pete and Alicia for that insight because while we're here at the feast of tabernacles we're we're visiting with brothers and sisters and sometimes Yah has a word for you in just a side conversation. Don't miss those words that Yahweh wants to speak directly into your life. The other thing, what else can we take away from these, just these two verses? Able to content every man's delight. He provided manna from heaven every day. And we went over today that the model prayer, did we not? We went over the model prayer. And did it not say, give us this day our daily bread? Do we sometimes just think that's physical bread? Give us this day our daily bread. See, every day we have the opportunity to feast on the living manna from heaven. And what's so wonderful about that is that it's able to content every man's delight. He customizes the word each day for each one of you, like Kevin was saying in that sweet hour of prayer and agreeing to every taste. But especially during this week of tabernacles, that's when we want to dive in to feed on his living manna and feast with him and hear what he has to say to us so he can serve to the appetite of the eater, tempered itself to every man's liking. He has a special individual word for each of us. And I love the daily devotionals that... Matthew shared with us. I'm not sure if I pronounced the name correctly, but it's M. Shanae or M. Cheney. And Tamra posts that every time she sends out a Shabbat invitation. And it is just an anointed devotional. I mean, this week, this week, Solomon's building the temple. In Ephesians, we're reading about the one new man. In Ezekiel, we're, ta- we're reading about the filed land. We're reading today about the dry bones. Then we're reading Psalms of Praise this week. You don't want to miss the daily devotional. That's when he sits across the table from you. That's when He talks to you. That's when He tabernacles with you. That's when we should be hearing hallelujahs screamed from the, the tents because He's with us. He, he's he's very much with us if, if you read those devotionals. It's clear, I'm with you. I'm right on track. I'm keeping up with all your sessions. So praise you just praise you and thank you Pete and Alicia that was a true blessing for all of us so today we're looking at part one pearls now in our last session I shared with you an acronym that I made up and I just want to quickly review that so what is the message of the manna because I don't want the message to get lost as we journey through this four-part series. It's moving away from nasty nutrition, physically and spiritually, which includes amount and frequency, and drawing near to him in a covenant, obedient lifestyle, and making it a lifestyle. Now, the, the amount and frequency we take in physically, Actually, should decrease. Now, I don't have. I'm not saying you have to be extravagant about it, and and the youth and stuff. They probably at least want an eight-hour window of feasting. But it even does them good for a 16-hour fast, a clean fast. It gives our body a time to rest. It gives your mind a time to focus on His manna and the spiritual side the amount and frequency should do what? Increase. Now that's awesome. And it's amazing how much more you can connect because your body's just not so burdened with digestion and peaks and valleys of insulin spikes. So what does the title pearls have to do with manna? this has been quite a journey we will find that the topic on manna will take us to exodus 1631 that's the first mention of manna where it reads in the house of israel called its name manna and it was like white coriander seed now that's the only place i've seen it identified as white in numbers 117 it's it, compares it to coriander seed, but it doesn't identify it as white. Here it does. And the taste of it was like thin cakes made with honey. Then in Numbers eleven 7, we're going to see that's where manna is said to also be like coriander, coriander seeds. And y'all have seen those, right? In the little spice jars, the little beads, like kind of a pearl because they're round. And has an appearance of delium, the B in Delium is silent, and there are only two mentions of Delium. What a strange word! There's only two mentions of Delium in the Bible, and in Numbers eleven seven, that's the last mention. The first mention of Delium is in Genesis chapter two, verse ten through twelve. And later the topic of manna will lead us to Revelation 2 17 these are some of the main verses we're going to hop between and then I'm going to take you on to Revelation 21 and we'll discuss that later and further in Genesis chapter 2 verse 10 through 12 we will immediately see royal priestly elements encircled in the land of Havilah closest to Eden or closest to Yahuwah. So we are going to look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 10 through 12 and Numbers 11. The Bdellium connection. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from there, it divided and became four heads. The name of the first is Phishon. It is the one surrounding the entire land of Havilah. And Havilah means circle. Where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium is there. Man, that makes you want to know what Delium is. Delium is there. And What? The shoham stone. Hello. Numbers 11, verse 7. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like the appearance of delium. There's other descriptions of delium. In other translations, it is described as ice, or hoarfrost frost, or clear drops, or sap from a tree, or delium. So you can see while we were about to take a journey. Manna defined in the Bible was the food miraculously provided for the Israelites in the wilderness during their flight from Egypt. Secondly, it's spiritual nourishment of divine origin. Third, something of value that a person receives unexpectedly. And delium is an aromatic gum resin. Now that's going to be very significant an aromatic gum resin similar to myrrh produced by certain Asian and African shrubs or trees of the genus Camifera. a name given to two aromatic gum resins similar to myrrh but weaker, and lastly, an unidentified substance mentioned in the Bible in Genesis 2.12 and Numbers 11.7, variously taken to be a gum, a precious stone. So now we've moved from gum resin to a precious stone. Or what? Pearls. Hmm. Or perhaps a kind of amber found in Arabia. Does that not have a broad (laughs) definition? I found it to be very broad. We recall that the jar of manna in the ark never spoiled or stunk. In Psalm seventy-eight twenty-four, we read, "And he rained down manna on them to eat, and he gave them the grain of the heavens." To give you an idea. Of the discrepancy on defining Delium. In the Septuagint it is considered as a precious stone, while Aquila, Simacus, the Adosian, and the Vulgate render it Delium, a transparent aromatic gum from a tree. Ringland supposes it to be a crystal while wall and Hartman render it barrel the Jewish rabbins however translate betelak which is the Hebrew word and they translate betelak by pearl To continue with the definitions of manna and delium, in Strong's, it says probably from H914. This part kind of blew me away, okay? H914 is listed right below, and it means separate. Set apart. Setting off Israel from other peoples. Making a distinction between clean and unclean. Holy and profane. Divide into parts. Prohibited in the case of fowls. Offered in sacrifice. So delium is probably from H914. It means something in pieces. That is a fragrant gum, perhaps amber. Others, a pearl. Therefore, the very definition of delium is connected to the root word meaning to separate, set apart, clean and unclean, holy and profane, divided into parts. But prohibited when birds were offered in sacrifice? Well, that connects us to Abraham's conditional guarantee with the flaying of the animals in Genesis 15, when the birds were not flayed so as not to break their bones. Obviously, Delium has a unique connection to the root word that describes who? Describes us. It describes Israel scattered abroad. Who knew? I didn't. <laughs> Please keep in mind that the only two places that Delium is found is in Genesis 2.12 and Numbers 11.7, and both are very significant. Even when looking up Strong's H914, I inadvertently was brought up Hebrews 9.14, popped up instead. It was interesting, and it reads this way. Hebrews 9.14, how much more shall the blood of the Messiah, who through the everlasting spirit offered himself unblemished to Elohim, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living Elohim. The delium gum-like substance had to be a binding agent. To hold the manna cakes together, much like Yehusha is the one that binds us together. We also see here that manna was defined again, the bread from heaven that fed the Israelites for 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And it means, what is it? And it's, it's interesting that delium actually means the same. You know, what is it? because there's such a broad, diverse opinion. And then when we get to Revelation, the Greek, Strong's defines it as manna, that is man, an edible gum. So it's a fragrant gum. Well, look here. Second Corinthians 2:15 through17, Because we are to Elohim the fragrance of Messiah among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death to death, and to the other, the fragrance of life to life. Excuse me. And who is competent for these? For we are not as so many adulterating the word of Elohim for gain. No, we are not as so many adulterating the word of Elohim for gain, but as of sincerity, but as from Elohim, in the sight of Elohim, we speak in Messiah. Now I asked a friend of mine to help me spell out the word Betelak in Hebrew. Now, she told me that the lamed may have been added later. So I was thinking that maybe Kevin, or if Emissary of Elohim is online today, if you would both consider looking at the word Betelak and see what meaning you extract from that. To me, with the letters given, bet, dalit, vav, lamed, het, my rookie interpretation. (laughs) That cannot be trusted. The house is entered through the door, secured by the nail that binds the divide. It binds the two houses. That's what it spoke to me. That's what it spoke to me. That's it. But we will wait for a real Hebrew interpretation by possibly Kevin or Emissary Elahim <laughs> or maybe someone else here that knows Hebrew well. So just take your time, meditate on that, look at it, and let's continue on with the presentation. In the interlinear Hebrew Old Old Testament, we read, And the gold land of that good, there, delium, stone. So there's several places that look at delium as a stone and the onyx. Regarding delium as a fragrant gum, resin possibly connects delium to gemstones or a type of stone. For instance, amber is fossilized resin. I mean, does, does everyone know that because I didn't know that. I mean, <laughs> does everybody know that amber was fossilized resin? Was, is anybody like with in my camp? <laughs> so anyway for so amber is fossilized resin it has made itself a place in the world of gemstones therefore resin is known to transmute from a liquid to a solid and a solid to a liquid and we recall if they didn't gather the manna fast enough and it heated up what would happen it wouldn't melt it would change consistency and are you familiar with the survival uses for tree resin? A healthy human body is impressive in its ability to heal itself. Your skin can knit itself back together after a minor cut or burn. When correctly set, a broken bone can mend itself. Did you know that many trees have a similar ability? For example, when a pine tree loses a limb, you will notice that a sticky substance, sometimes called pitch, flows from the tree and covers the open area, essentially covering the wound like a bandage. This substance, called resin, keeps parasites and predators out of the tree and eventually hardens to form a permanent protective seal. For thousands of years, people all over the world have incorporated the healing powers of tree resin into their medicines. Ephesians 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the set-apart spirit of Elohim, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So what is tree sap versus tree resin? Before we get to the uses for tree resin, it is important to make the distinction between tree sap and tree resin Although many people confuse the two, they are actually different substances. Most trees produce sap, but only trees that belong to the Pinacea family, including pine, fir, and cedar trees, produce resin. Another way to look at it is that trees that shed their leaves each year, called deciduous trees, usually have sap, but do not produce resin. Coniferous, or evergreen trees, usually produce both sap and resin. The liquid that comes from a maple tree is a sap, not a resin. Sap is a thin, clear, watery substance, while resin is thick, amber-colored, and sticky. Human use of plant resins has a very long history that was documented in ancient Greece by Theophritus, in ancient Rome by Pliny the Elder and especially in the resins known as frankincense and myrrh prized in ancient Egypt. These were highly prized substances and required as incense in some religious rites. As we review survival uses for resin, keep in mind the definition of delium as a possible gum or resin. Therefore, there there possibly were medicinal purposes connected to the manna. We also see similar qualities provided through Yahusha. Wound healing by protecting against bacteria, fighting inflammation, reducing scarring, promoting faster healing. Waterproof adhesive pitch, well, that reminds us of Noah's ark, Moses' basket, and how Yahushua seals us, his people. Fire started, a fire starter. We recall in the lesson on Obadiah, Israel is a fire and Joseph a flame. We learned yesterday when Matthew said that Yahushua ignites our DNA, Light source, pain reduction, skin treatment, sore throat aid, soap, gripping, and friction. So there is a picture of fossilized tree resin. Examples of plant resins, again, include amber, it includes the balm of Gilead. Is there no balm in Gilead? Canada balsam, copal. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 11 through 12, essentially in the very beginning of his word, we have gold, we have delium, and the shohan stone being introduced. So manna was described as having an appearance of delium, an appearance of amber, or a gum, or pearls, but we know it must have been white. It can be in different colors, because it said it was like white coriander seed. So amber, gum, or pearls. And delium is in many pieces. That's the other definition of it. It's scattered in many pieces. But there's more. Let's read Genesis 2, 10 through 12 again. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four heads. The name of the first is Bashan. It is the one surrounding the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium is there, and the shoham stone. So we have manna, with an appearance of delium. And delium is defined as something in many pieces, can be pearls, gum, tree resin, amber. It's a binding agent, and it can fossilize into a solid. So delium was there in Genesis, and also onyx, and Shoham is the Hebrew word for onyx. In the land of Havilah, which means circle, where there is gold, to the first river Pishon surrounds the land of Havilah, the first of the four rivers out of Eden. Therefore we see the delium and onyx connected to the first river Pishon, which was the first of four rivers from the river of Eden. We know the shoham stones of onyx have a sparkly translucent look, which belies the fact that it's solid rock It looks like a gemstone with wavy bands of amber, ivory, and white fused together in a fluid pattern. When backlit, onyx radiates a soft ethereal light. It's truly an extraordinary stone. Wherever it is used, it will take center stage. But there's more. Shoham is translated as onyx in both Exodus 28.20 and Ezekiel 28.13. Shoham is Hebrew for onyx. When backlit, onyx radiates that soft, ethereal light. So we have two shoham stones on the shoulder garments that are onyx, with the names of six tribes on each. Then, between the folds of the linen breastplate, where the mysterious shoham stones, next to the heart of the high priest for ascertaining the will of Elohim, the onyx stones were the Urim and Thumen. The lights and the perfections are truth. But exactly how they function, we can only speculate. It is believed they would rather light up and give the high priest answers from Elohim. Lastly, The middle stone in the last row of stones on the breastplate was onyx and was associated with the tribe of Joseph. We will see that the Bible also states that the fifth foundational stone in the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21-20, which is like the onyx, but it's called sardonyx. Strong's states the word refers to the nail of a finger, probably due to its flesh-tone color, and both it and Thayer's lexicon translates the word as sardonyx. Thayer's states that sardonyx was a stone containing red, crimson lines, and white colors, and we know Sard, and the word sardonyx means red. So it had parallel red or reddish bands instead of black. Because many times when we think of onyx, we think of black. But onyx can come in different colors. So in Exodus 28, 9, we begin to read... And you shall take two Shohem stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of the names on one stone and the remaining six names on the other stone. With the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel, set them in settings of gold. And when you shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the shoulder garment as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel, And Aaron shall bear their names before Yahweh on his two shoulders for a remembrance. And you shall make settings of gold and two chains of clean gold like braided cords and fasten the braided chains to the settings. And you shall make a breastplate of right ruling, a work of a skilled workman, like the work of the shoulder garment. Make it of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine woven linen. It is square, double, to span its length, and the span its width. And you shall put settings of stones in it, four rows of stones. Skipping to verse twenty. And the fourth row is a barrel, and a shoham, or onyx stone, and a jasper. They are set in gold settings, and the stones are according to the names of the sons of Israel. Twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one with its own name for the twelve tribes. Verse 30, And into the breastplate of right ruling you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on the heart of Aaron when he goes in before Yahweh, and Aaron shall bear the right ruling of the children of Israel on his heart before Yahweh continually. Now in verse 9 the first verse we read and you shall take two stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel I want us to remember the white stone that will be given to overcomers because we start to see patterns don't we The stone that will be given to overcomers in Revelation chapter 2 verse 17 and we saw how the hidden manna in that Verse along with a white stone, and that stone could be engraved upon with a new name. It said is mentioned in that one verse. All together, hidden manna, white stone, and a stone that would be have a name engraved on it—a new name. And in Exodus 28:12 that we read, how Aaron would bear the stones on his shoulder reminds us of Isaiah 9, 6. For a child is born unto us, a son is given unto us, and the rule is on his shoulders. I want us to see the patterns between manna, delium, Israel, shoham, or onyx, and sardonyx in Revelation 21 21 and the 12 gates were 12 pearls each one of the gates was a single pearl and the street of the city was clean gold like transparent glass Let's ponder this. Were the gates a pearl? Were they oyster pearls? Or were they possibly delium pearls? We know the gates have the names of the 12 tribes written upon them, Revelation 21 12 just like the onyx show stones on the shoulders of the high priest had the names of the 12 tribes, six on each shoulder. And we know that bel delium means pearl and it is connected to set apart ones of Israel presently in many pieces through the definition, the core definition. So question, would it be an oyster pearl From an unclean creature. Can anything clean come out of unclean? Or possibly, maybe one day all things will be clean. I don't know. I just want us to ponder that. Because in Revelation, Strong's defines pearl as a pearl oyster, oyster, a pearl. So we have the definition of delium. And here are some graphics of what manna, delium, and white and honey-colored onyx look like. Many times when we think of onyx, like I shared, we think of black. But onyx can be several colors. So you see a slab of white onyx. You see a slab of onyx honey. You see a first-century Roman cameo made from onyx and at the top you see coriander seed, and next to it you see delium stones, and then a possible what manna may have looked like. So in Strong's we see two definitions for pearl. It can be a pearl, and it can also be a proverb, a word of great value. And I believe we could add a third definition. I, I don't see why we couldn't even add as possible delium in pearls. So as a proverb, pearl means to thrust the most sacred and precious teaching of the gospel upon the most wicked and abandoned men in, in some verses. And so we have all of these definitions in Job 28, 18. It's from an unusual root, meaning to freeze. That's where it's defined as crystal from its resemblance to ice, pearl. And in Proverbs chapter 3, 15, from the same as H. 6434, probably a pearl as round. So sometimes you describe something as a pearl because it's just round. And it also has ruby there. Wow, there's another gemstone, if you will. So ruby also can allude to a pearl as round. Thus pearl is defined many ways throughout history. And through scripture, we have in Matthew 7, 6, Give not that which is holy to the dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he found one a great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's what Yahushua did for us, did he not? Did he not leave his throne room and came and searched us out? And then in turn, we found him uh, the, the greatest pearl of all. In like manner also that woman adorned thems- in like manner also that women adorned themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. But that rule doesn't apply to the Revelation 17 woman. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. Now those may have been oyster pearls. And of course, Babylon was all um, glittered up, if you will, merchandise of gold, silver, precious stones, and pearls, fine linen, purple, and silk. In Revelation 18:16, and saying, "Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls." and Revelation 21:21 21, 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls each one of the gates was a single pearl and the street of the city was clean gold like transparent glass 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 through 7 drawing near to him a living stone rejected indeed by men but chosen by Elohim and precious you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a set-apart priesthood, to offer up spiritual slaughter offerings acceptable to Elohim through Yahushua HaMashiach because it is contained in the Scripture. See, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, chosen, precious, And he who believes on him shall by no means be put to shame. This preciousness, then, is for you who believe. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The message of the manna involves exercising biblical obedience over both our physical and spiritual dietary appetites which should have begun at our exodus. But praise Yah, better late than never, that we're learning these foundational truths. Exodus 12:18. In the first month, on the 14th day of the new month in the evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the new month in the evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened, that same being shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether sojourner or native of the land. Do not eat that which is leavened. In all your dwellings you are to eat unleavened bread. For the most part, most of us learned what to eat, when to eat, how to eat, by the world and by, from our parents, from our cultures, They dictated our diets and disciplines in the natural realm. The shift for the Israelites out of cultural Egypt began with Passover, as recorded in Exodus 12. Simultaneously, Yahuwah was also teaching about leaven, first in the natural and later in the spiritual. Yah patiently chooses to teach us spiritual truths based on our natural reality. So, they were to eat. They were not to eat anything that had leaven in it. Yahusha's food was to do the desire of his father. John 4, 31 through 34. But in the meantime, his taught ones were asking him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Then the taught ones said to each other, did anyone bring him food to eat? Yahusha said to them, my food is to do the desire of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Yahusha was always prepared for what the day held. His focus and nourishment or food, was accomplishing the desire of his father first and foremost. His disciples were concerned for him and wanted him to physically eat. He chose instead to feed on spiritual manna and do the desire of his father and accomplish his father's work. Those of us in him have natural vision and spiritual vision, natural hearing and spiritual hearing, natural tangible manna, and we have heavenly spiritual manna of life that we can feed on every morning, and we should, and we should commune with him. As we draw closer to him, our physical manna exists more and more in a denigrated manner, because this world promotes it like top of the line which are the things of the world that grow strangely dim. And the spiritual manna is elevated in the light of his glory and grace. Yahusha's spiritual manna and ministry superseded his need for manna in the natural. Yahusha heals a boy with a demon. Matthew chapter 17, 14 through 21 and when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Master, have compassion on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers badly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your top ones, but they were unable to heal him. And Yahusha answering said, O oh, generation, unbelieving and perverted, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Yahusha rebuked the demon. And he came out of him, and the child was healed from that hour. Then the taught ones came to Yahusha by himself and said, Why were we unable to cast him out? And Yahusha said to them, Because of your unbelief. For truly I say to you, if you have belief as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it shall move, and no matter shall be impossible. No, and no matter shall be impossible for you. But this kind does not go out, except through prayer and fasting. Are we an unbelieving and perverted generation? I suppose so. Do we need to know the why behind all things he tells us to do? No, we don't. Yahushua said, bring the boy to him. Yahushua rebuked the demon, and the child was healed from that hour we see that Yahushua didn't have to say to the man, uh, would you bring your son back tomorrow? I'm going to go home. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to just fast and pray and, and, and then come back tomorrow and then I'll heal him. No, he didn't do that, did he? Why? Because he was living a lifestyle of fasting and prayer. He was always ready he was always ready so for me this indicates that we should obviously value being being in a state of prayer and fasting not starving ourselves not making ourselves sick and and everybody's individual and it depends on age and all kinds of factors but think about it if our bodies are constantly putting forth energy to digest three meals a day and snacks then we have more then we would have more freedom to be spiritually focused spiritually powerful and physically healed fasting is a big part of healing when we get out of the way we just need to get out of the way we let our bodies reset both in the natural and spiritual, because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And by the time we get to the end of this series, you're going to see just how fearfully and wonderfully made we are. Obedient disciplines begin with instructions as practiced in the natural. Then those disciplined skills create success for our supernatural spiritual journey. Like all of you parents here at Sukkot with your children and those online, you are raising your children biblically in a covenant-confirming obedience to Yahuwah. You are raising the next generation that will understand how to live and walk in a covenant, obedient lifestyle. And for the rest of us, we get to see with our own eyes what that looks like because most of us were not raised in that manner. And it's a beautiful thing to see. And it's a most important accomplishment as a parent to instill that in your children psalm 85 5 would you be enraged with us forever would you draw out your displeasure from generation to generation would you not revive us again for your people to rejoice in you psalm 85 5 and 6. First Colossians, no, excuse me, First Corinthians chapter 15, 45 through 49. And so it has been written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam a living, life-giving spirit. The spiritual, however, was not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, earthy. The second man is the master from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the likeness of the earthy, we shall also bear the likeness of the heavenly. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So this truth applies to the message of the manna. This world only exists in physical and spiritual darkness. It thrives on the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. This very much includes food. Food, drinks, pharmacia are a big part of the devil's playground. For Melchizedek believers, spiritual manna should reign in our lives, and physical, worldly appetites of various lusts and idolatries be called into submission to his spirit. Psalm 141.4 Let not my heart be inclined to evil to practice deeds of wrongness with men working wickedness and let me not eat of their delicacies. Men, we are surrounded by man-made delicacies. It's a real challenge today and we can only do our very best. We can only do our very best and try to make the best choices. So believers must develop discipline in the physical realm before we will truly be successful in the spiritual realm. Instead of the Israelites calling their fleshly mindset into submission to the provisions provided, they chose to let their minds wander back to the leeks, garlic, and flesh pots in Egyptian slavery. In Egypt, they had been surrounded by a broad array and abundance of all types of clean and unclean foods to partake in. Sound familiar? Are we not just surrounded and inundated with food at every turn, every corner, on every street corner? Anything was allowed in Egypt. Their mindset was undisciplined. They were carnally minded, desiring to live to eat by being led by their bellies, instead of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I believe we have undervalued the importance of this physical discipline of lifestyle fasting for calling our fleshly lusts for foods and other addictions under submission to Yahweh. But also, we were really never taught how to fast. I know I wasn't And I was not successful at trying to fast. But there is a proper way, and I hope we glean some insights to that proper way this week. I can tell you of four individuals that did not undervalue their physical discipline when they had the most tantalizing spread of food and drinks laid before them. These young men This is the youth I'm talking about that are here this week at the Feast of Tabernacles. Disciplined youth, setting the example. These young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were raised in a covenant-obedient lifestyle. That's what they look like. For us, those tantalizing Delicacies would be more like hamburgers, french fries, hot dogs, desserts, so forth and so on. Daniel chapter 1 verse 12 through 14. Please try your servants for 10 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearances be examined before you and the appearances of the young men who eat the portion of the sovereign's food. And do with your servants as you see fit. And he listened to them in this manner and tried them 10 days. And what happened? They turned out better looking than the ones that ate all the delicacies. And the same thing happens to us if we eat nutrient dense foods and we fast. That's what I have found. I'm not pushing that on anybody, I think, but I do believe it's biblical. There is nothing new under the sun. The enemy attacks in various tantalizing and mouth-watering ways. Here's an excerpt from Into All Truth Pillars of Health blog. Because in these end of days, more than any other time, we need to help our physical bodies have a strong immune system and to function optimally. Because they're putting more and more stuff in the cattle and all kinds of stuff. And we're just going to really have to get to that one ingredient food. Go out to your garden and get those one ingredient foods. Gather them up and make a great big salad or whatever. But try to... Stay away from what they're creating. I'm not advocating any particular product or person, only that we become mindset coaches over our bodies and submit to being fully led by his spirit, having the mind of Yahusha. We must get our fleshly appetites out of the way in order to live victoriously and walk in the power of the resurrection and not be a stumbling block. Because if you look out at the worldly upcoming generation, they are badly suffering. They are badly suffering. And they are beautiful young people, but the foods that they are eating, they're literally destroying them and the world keeps on promoting you know, supersize this, supersize that and they promote advertisements that that neutralize it and there's a whole generation out there ready to be rescued and you know possibly a way to reach the world is through this type of approach about manna about what we eat, because everybody's struggling with this. Everybody, everybody wants answers. What's going on with my body? People look in the mirror and they say, who's that? You know, it's just mind-boggling. Let me read this little blog. It's so interesting. Ancient healing practitioners of today that we can get cues from. Many of our famed natural healers were persecuted or killed for the vital information they provided around healing. And it's no wonder. Their healing herbs had much in common. Let's look at some of the healers here in North America and their herbal remedies to learn what they had in common. There are many more that are listed here. Dr. Sebi came up with the African biomineral diet after he was cured of mental illness, impotence, and diabetes by doing a 90-day fast with herbs. He retired from engineering and chose to heal people instead. He studied the herbs that had healed him in West Africa. After defending himself against the FDA in a trial of the New York Supreme Court, Dr. Seavey was proven with evidence to have cured AIDS, diabetes, cancer, and more. Seavey was a self-taught engineer who spent most of his childhood in nature observing the procession of life. According to CB, our pituitary gland, this is what I was talking about earlier, Jose, our pituitary gland is made of carbon and our cerebral cortex, copper. These are the two elements of any power generator. He used herbs to heal and maintain the electric body CB's Bio1 and Bio2 cleansing products his iron supplement Maya and his use of Irish moss for mineral balance provide accessible clues to natural healing Matthew 316 and having been immersed, Yahushua went up immediately from the water, and see, the heavens were open, and he saw the spirit of Elohim descending like a dove and coming upon him, and see a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my son, the beloved in whom I delight. Then Yahushua was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tried by the devil, and after having fasted forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the trier came and said to him, If you are the son of Elohim, command these stones, become bread. But he answering said, It has been written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh." Satan is always attacking us many times with food. And of course, Yahushua was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. So, right after the mikvah of Yahushua by John the Mercer, the priestly transference had taken place. John the Mercer was serving as a high priest after the Aaronic Levitical order. He was functioning out in the wilderness due to the corruption in the temple. With this transference, Yahushua our high priest after the order of Melchizedek was now elevating the Melchizedek priesthood back to its reigning position. He immediately teaches us the same lesson he taught at the Exodus as stated in Deuteronomy 8.3 about man shall not live by bread alone. Just look at that. Satan first tried Yahushua regarding food. Huh. john twelve thirty two and i if i am lifted up from the earth shall draw all men unto myself yahushua is the gum he's the resin that binds us together as one in him and i'd like i like this particular picture with the water droplets surrounding Yehusha because they kind of reminded me of Delium, if you will, and how he's going to draw all men unto himself because it's in our very DNA. He has ignited our very DNA. It's energy, right? Didn't we just learn that yesterday? And he will draw that energy to himself. He's the bread of life. And those little particles just reminded me of delium. Now let's listen to this brief clip.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And and, and, and that's the thing. The patients have to take
0: responsibility because the medical profession, the way it's set up, Right now,
1: we, we we just we're not in a position to do that. We have to, you know, we don't have enough resources. We do not have enough time. So what we can do is we can educate patients and we can throw light on the issues that have brought them to where they are now and show them how they can get out of it. Show them, empower them, and educate them so that they make their decisions. And when they make their decisions, they will do it. And there, it's, it's, it's self-empowering. It feeds back on themselves and says, look, I was able to do this, and I can not think I could do this. And so that brings us to that issue that there are so many layers of onions that we can peel off, and fasting is the one that really seems to me to open up aspects of their lifestyle which they would not have otherwise looked at. Because fasting does bring in lots of issues into their life. It, it opens up the introspection into their life. What's going on? What's driving these things in my life? Yeah. And that's what I like about fasting. Is it's, it's so different. I mean, Imagine if I just give them a diet and say, OK, you're just going to eat this. Um, OK, they can going eat that. That's it. But in fasting, it's self-control. It's,
0: it, it's deeper thinking about the habits and
1: all the other things that we, we're gonna talk
0: All the other things we are going to talk about. So it's not a diet. It is a covenant, obedient lifestyle change. Have the mindset of Yahusha, which requires us to be honest with ourselves and get out of the way. Shalom to all of you. Thank you so much.